Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Yeah, I want you to open your Bible. If you didn't receive a message card today, you can raise your hand right quick. If you open your Bible, you should already be there to Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to look in our time together today. And we're going to spend today in what might be the most unusual Christmas message that you've heard, but that's okay. I assure you um, with all diligence that this indeed is a Christmas message. And I'm really, really excited about what God would share and speak to us today. Most of you, maybe in this room, you're not very familiar with the book of Revelation. Maybe for you, it seems like the Lord of the Rings installment in the Bible, and you are sometimes a little unsure of what to do with it. But the Christian tradition that I got born again in when I met Christ at 16 years old, I grew up in, was pretty obsessed with the second coming of Christ, and particularly the book of Revelation. We were obsessed with the end times. In theology, we call this eschatology, the study of the last things, right? We were obsessed with it, and we were obsessed with it. We had our charts and our timelines of the last days with our educated guesses about which political figures and which Hollywood stars represented which beast, and you know, and which beast would match up to which you know Hollywood star, and, and we had our annual prophecy conferences. If you've ever been a part of this kind of tradition, we had our end times movies. We had our rapture board games, and this is no joke, right? I mean, this is no joke at all. I particularly was particularly obsessed with what we call the rapture. This is what really enthralled me and brought me great joy. I particularly have written about the rapture many times, the second coming of Christ, but the second coming of Christ being preceded by the rapture. And the rapture, of course, is the belief that Jesus will come again in the clouds and believers will rise to meet him in the air. And we shall receive, the dead in Christ shall receive their resurrected body and we shall also and forever we shall be with the Lord. And then, of course, God unleashes hell on earth, right? What we call the seven years of tribulation. And so for if any reason, I don't know about you, because I was obsessed with it, I couldn't find my parents in my house. If I woke up on a Saturday morning or a Tuesday afternoon or in the midst of a nap and I couldn't find my parents in my house, I just realized I was going to walk into my mom's room and her her clothes were going to be in a pile on the floor because somehow with our tradition, we just thought that you went into the atmosphere naked, okay? So the rapture took place. I don't know why you go naked. I guess, you know, Joe tells us, naked I came, naked I leave. But uh, I don't know, but we always thought you had to leave naked. You had to meet the Lord naked in the air. But either Either way, I just knew in my tradition that, man, my mother, my parents had been raptured, right? They had been raptured and were flying through the atmosphere. There was a book that I came out when we were very, very young. I was very, very young. Many of you may remember it. It was a book that became an instant bestseller. It was called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. I don't know if you remember this text. Anybody? 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. Now, here's what's so amazing. Specifically, on September 11th, 12th, or 13th, this is what this guy said Jesus would return. The world would end. Now, here's what's crazy about it. It was uh, coinciding with the week of the Jewish feast, Rosh Hashanah, and this thing was an instant bestseller. Did you know this book, within like a couple of months, sold 2 million copies? 2 million copies. It was written by a man named Edgar Wisnett. Edgar Wisnett was a NASA engineer. And so in this book, you had both spaceships and you had scripture. Now, folks, that is a perfect recipe for superstitious Christians. 
Okay, superstitious Christians love spaceships and they love trying to debate when Jesus shall return. Well, a lot of people pushed back against this book and they said things like, Scripture says that no man knows the day. Jesus said no man knows the hour of Jesus' return. Well, Wisnet said, okay, I don't know the day or the hour. I just know the week, September 11th through 13th. And so he would rebuttal against everybody's rebuttal, right? Saying, oh, I just know it's the week. I don't know the day or the hour, but it is Indeed, the week. Well, suffice to say what happened. September 11th through 13th came and went. Now, you would have thought that a man like Wisnet, who is a NASA guy, that would have been the end of Wisnet's teaching ministry. But the next year, he came out with another book claiming he had done the math wrong. And so he came out with 89 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1989. I kid you not. I got that copy too. This is Edgar Wisnet. Now, some of you in this room, you you say, man, I may have not had that experience, but I know for a fact some of you still have some Y2K food tucked away in a closet somewhere or underneath a a cabinet somewhere, right? And, And you own every volume of the Left Behind series. So maybe that resonates with you. Can I be honest with you? I'm glad we at Dwelling Place are not obsessed like this at this church in the sense of that we only teach and talk about this. But I think that we in the modern day era, and particularly in the Western church, I think we might fall into an ep- uh, opposite and what I call a more pernicious era. And what are, you, what are you saying, Craig? Most Christians today rarely ever think about the second coming of Christ. Most Christians today, even in this Advent season, Advent means the first coming of Christ, the first Advent. That's what Christmas is. We talk always about the first coming of Jesus Christ. Get this, the second coming of Christ is the most talked about doctrine in the entire Bible. The entire Bible. Statistically, the Bible talks about the first coming of Christ a measly 129 times. And we got a whole holiday for that. And as I heard on the radio yesterday, there's such thing called now psychologically called Christmas weary. You can become Christmas weary. I will tell you, I am Christmas weary by about December 10th. I'm not a really big, I'm not a Grinch. I'm just not a really big Christmas music fan. And I get weary very quickly over the over-commercialization of Christmas. I do. But nonetheless, we got 129 specific prophecies about the first coming of Christ. And yet the second coming of Christ is talked about 329 times. 329 times. And yet we rarely ever mention it. For every one prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first advent, there are eight that talk about his second advent. So I think for us in this Christmas season to really understand his first advent, we're talking about down to earth, we've got to see it through the lens of his second down to earth. We've got to see it through the lens of what he's doing when he shall return, which is, by the way, what the whole book of Revelation is all about. Now, the bad news is we don't have time for a whole series on the book of Revelation, but if you're interested in that, we have a whole series on our podcast And you can follow that. We preached in last summer. I think it was in the month of June. We preached through the whole book of Revelation. But that is maybe a future sermon wish list for another day. But I wanted to take today, as we head into Christmas, to look at one single glimpse given to us of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Because that's what you see Revelation's all about. It's about a glimpse of Jesus. Because when we get a glimpse of Jesus, the book of Revelation tells us that who he is indicates what the future holds. And if we can understand who he is, we'll get a better grasp on what the future really holds. Now, the writer of Revelation is John the Beloved. He's John 
the beloved that he wrote four other pieces of work that we find in our inspired canon, four other books, the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John that we find there in those epistles right before the book of Revelation. But notice how he begins. He tells you the purpose of why he writes Revelation. Here's the purpose of Revelation. And by the way, it is Revelation, not Revelations. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice what verse 1 says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Church, the book of Revelation, and Revelation in its essence means the unveiling. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the question is immediately posed. The question is, is Jesus the one doing the unveiling, or is it Jesus who is himself being unveiled? That's a great question. That's a great question for Revelation 1 and 1. Let me ask it this way. Did you get that? If I say, ladies and gentlemen, today we have the presentation of Hank Murphy. Does that mean Hank Murphy is about to present something to us, like his solar system, you know, that he made for the science fair at school? Or are we presenting Hank Murphy under a different name? That's the question. Is this the revelation of Jesus? Or is it a revelation by Jesus of something else? And the answer to that is yes. Yes. What do you mean yes? In fact, scholars say the way it's written in Greek is ambiguous. Because what follows the whole rest of the book is a revelation of Jesus and also a revelation from Jesus of the, th- the things that are soon to take place. So it is indeed both. Now understand, church, the b- main point of the book of Revelation is not to give you a specific timeline of events that are take place at the end. That's not the reason John wrote on the Isle of Patmos. It's not to help you figure out which beast is Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, or Hillary Clinton. Although that sounds like the pretty scary three-headed beast. I don't think there's a worse one in the book of Revelation than those three faces, right? On one single individual. But, but that's not why it's written, right? The point is to pull back the curtain of history so you can see the powers at work behind the political figures on earth. So you can see the powers at work behind political powers that we see on planet Earth. See, people read the book of Revelation, they see all the dragons and the imagery and the beasts, and they imagine it as some delusional fantasy world. But what it's actually doing is it's looking through the world through spiritual eyes to show you powers at work behind what you see. It's actually, if you were to say it this way, the most accurate description of the world that you'll ever see. Very, very clear. It's the unveiling. It's the unmasking of what's really, really going on. The unveiling of both the powers that at work on earth and Jesus' power above them all. Can I hear an amen? Reminds me of one of my favorite movies called Face Off. If you remember this movie, Face Off, with Nicolas Cage. And, and uh, what Nicolas Cage was the guy who worked for the government. He was like a special weapons agent. And if you remember, John Travolta, the bad guy, who seemed to have all the power in the movie, he wanted to get the opportunity to be able to have access to all these weapons. So uh, throughout the movie, Nicolas Cage goes into a coma and John Travolta steals his face. He has his doctor cut off Nicolas Cage's face and put it on John Travolta's face. And then he impersonates Nicolas Cage in order to gain classified information and try to steal weapons 
from the government. So he looks like Nicolas Cage, but he's not. When Nicolas Cage wakes up from his coma without a face, which is always a bad day when you have no face and you wake up. That's never a really good day. So he wakes up with no face. And so since he wakes up with no face, he asks the doctor to put John Travolta's face on him. So the whole rest of the movie, therein you have the dilemma. You don't know who is Nicolas Cage. You don't know who is John Travolta. You think that John Travolta is John Travolta, but John Travolta is really Nicolas Cage, and Nicolas Cage is Nicolas Cage, but Nicolas Cage is really John Travolta. And so John Travolta looks like the one that has all the power, but Nicolas Cage really has all the power. And so this is the climax of the movie is when finally we get the faces taken off and who is whom is unveiled. Can I tell you that the book of Revelation is the face-off for the New Testament, because Jesus finally gets unveiled for who he is. And the whole time he's on earth, he has a different face on, if I can say it that way. But in the book of Revelation, we really get to see who he really is. So all the people, when Jesus is living, seem to have all the power on earth. But the reality is the one who is tender, meek, and mild has all of the power. And it's not until the book of Revelation that we get to see that the one who looked like he had no power really has all power. He has all power. It's the face-off of the New Testament. And I've always wanted to preach a message where I could say that Jesus is the truer and better Nicholas Cage. So there it is. Jesus, indeed, is truer and better. You see, the church at this point in history is not doing well. We have this idea that the church, apostolic age, early church, was so wonderful. We have this idea made up in our minds, like we have glorious images of the early church. The church is suffering deeply right now. The church is hurting deeply right now, especially John, the beloved. John, the beloved, is hurting. All of the apostles have been martyred. All of them have been martyred except for John. And he's on the island of Patmos, right there in the Mediterranean Sea. He is exiled off the coast there of modern-day Turkey, what we would call Asia Minor at that time. And this is the Roman equivalent of Alcatraz. He's been tortured. The Romans had tortured him. You say, Craig, how did he get tortured? Eusebius, one of our great church fathers, said that there at about 80 AD, they took John there in, in Ephesus and they put him in a bowl, a, a, a vat of oil, and they would torture him by turning up the heat very slowly, and it would begin to burn. And so he has skin that's unrecognizable. He's, he's literally been burned in a vat of oil. And so they can't do anything with him. He's not dying. So they say, we're going to get rid of him. And they exile him to the Isle of Patmos. And here is John now. Nero has made, Nero was an emperor who killed uh, the apostle Paul, 64 AD. He cut his head off. Nero was a crazy man. Nero would take the streets of Rome and he would take big spears and he would put Christians and impale them on. He would, he would allow their, their anus to literally go on top of this impaled. And the impaled spear would go up through their body. And then they would light their heads on fire and use them as street lamps. The Christians there in Rome. And this is a, this is a tough time in the history of the church. This is a really, really suffering, persecuting time in the history of the church. And Nero has made Christians the scapegoat for a number of Rome's calamities. And he used that as a pretext for hunting them down and killing them. And one of his successors, Domitian, Domitian was a crazy, crazy successor in Rome, and he was preparing to unleash a far worse persecution. And unless the Christians consented to say Jesus or to say Caesar is Lord, which of course they wouldn't do. So John is riding from his remote island in Patmos, and he sees the storm clouds that are starting to build on the horizon. John sees the tribulation clouds off in the distance, in the very near future. This is not a great day to be a Christian. So on this lonely island, this forsaken island of Patmos, Jesus appears to John in, in his prison cell and he gives him a revelation of who he is and what he's doing in all of this. Now listen to me, church. Now I know those of us in this room today, we're not facing the same kinds of persecution. I know that. 
It's not illegal to follow Jesus where we live, although I must say those who may be streaming live or particularly those who are following our podcast, we have people around the, the earth now, literally do. I don't know how it happens, but nations each and every week that are listening to the message. So there may be some or missionaries that would listen to this message today that are in a place where, you know what, they, it is illegal to follow Jesus. But regardless of whether or not it's illegal to follow Jesus in our culture or not, we wrestle with many of the same questions. We wrestle. Many of you face powers right now that you vastly believe overwhelm your own power. You face powers right now in your season of life that you you believe vastly overwhelm your capacity to get yourself out, your capacity to escape it. You can see storm clouds on the horizon of your life. You can see storm clouds at work right now. Those storm clouds may come in the form of chronic illness. You've been praying for healing to come, and yet you've not received any healing. Maybe those storm clouds come as you're walking through divorce this season of your life. Maybe those storm clouds are coming in the form of an addiction that you can't shake. Maybe those storm clouds come in the form of your weariness at fighting sin that seems to be so habitual and will not leave you alone. Maybe it's you're facing a storm cloud. It's a problem with your kids, and you're at a place now in your life where you're totally helpless to seem to rescue your kids from what it is that they're facing. Or maybe it's just a dark cloud of anxiety and depression. Maybe it follows you wherever you go. No matter what you seem to do and what you've done in seasons previous to this, it seems to consistently follow you, consistently hover in your life. Maybe you're in one now. The dark clouds of oppression are upon you, and you look like John. You look like John at the future and say, Lord, what do I do? And now it comes along Christmas. It's December, which is supposedly all about happiness and good cheer. And you go to Christmas parties and you stand in the corner. You can't enjoy it because of the difficulties you're facing. It's unable, unable in those seasons maybe to look at beyond what you're currently at in the season of life because there is a chair that's empty that shouldn't be empty that you think this Christmas. Maybe it's a challenge that you're facing that seems to be insurmountable. Maybe at this point in your life, your, your, your Christmas is coming around and it reminds you of the empty place at your table or, or broken relationship that was supposed to last forever. Maybe you come in today ready to give up. Maybe you come in today and, and to be honest with you, you're not even really sure why you're here. If you're just honest with yourself, you know it's Sunday morning, you know it's Christmas season, but you're not really sure why you're here. You certainly didn't come in looking for hope. You're long past good cheer. You're now in management mode of life. You're now in sustainability. You're now in just endurance. You're now in just make it day after day. Well, can I just say something to you? This is going to sound strange, but I want to tell you it's the God honest truth. If that's you in here today, let me tell you. The book of Revelation was written for you. Why? John 1. Revelation 1 and 9, look what John says. He says there in verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in suffering. I, John, your brother and your companion in suffering, a.k.a. as strange as it sounds, this book is written for you. If you're in here today and those of you, maybe you're like me, you're suffering a bit right now. Maybe you got a little pain in your life that seems to be persistent. If you're looking into the future and you're seeing the dark clouds of oppression, I'm going to tell you, John's got something to say to you today. John wants to talk to you today. Would you listen? He wants to share something with you. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, like a trumpet. Look at verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. Please understand, church, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches of Asia Minor. Please understand, each of these churches represent all churches or all times. 
but the seven lampstands of the seven churches. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, Jesus, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And these, by the way, church, are the images that point to Jesus as being the high priest. The language you and I just read was symbolism and imagery around the Old Testament priests. What John is telling you is he looks behind him and he finds the great high priest. He finds one who has fulfilled all of the priestly duty. He serves God for us. He is praying to the Father for us. He represents us to the Father. He is the great high priest. These all, now he's going to switch, watch, he's going to switch symbols. You ready? Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roaring of many waters. In his right hand, he's held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The seven stars, by the way, represent the seven pastors of these seven lampstands. These are the seven leaders of these seven churches. And what is Jesus saying? Not only am I in control of the churches, but I'm in control of the leaders of those churches. Now he moves from the symbols of the high priest to the symbols of ultimate power and control. Ultimate power and control. Look at it. Verse 14, white hair in those days symbolized wisdom. So he's saying that his brilliant white hair like snow means that Jesus is wiser than the wisest. He's wiser than the wisest. Having eyes of fire means that his insight penetrates more darply or, or, or sharper than the sharpest laser. His eyes are like fire, having a face that's brighter than the brightest sun, a voice that is louder than the loudest ocean, which indicates, by the way, more than just decibel level. This also represents the volume and the fullness and the immensity of his voice. The volume, the fullness, the anthem of his voice, which means this is someone that has power beyond what John could ever imagine. His voice like the sound of many waters. His words are like a sword, which means they possess the ability to pierce. They can separate into part. They can pierce between deception and truth in your life. The words can pierce in the deepest way and destroy. And the seven stars he holds, we see in chapter 2, represent the churches, which show you that in the midst of all of the turmoil, Jesus securely holds the church in his hands. Jesus is in the turmoil with us. He's in the turmoil with us. Look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now keep in mind, keep in mind, this is the first time Jesus and John had seen each other since the ascension. It has been 65 years since they've laid eyes on one another. 65 years. These are BFFs. Jesus and John were BFFs. What do you mean BFFs? Listen, if you know the New Testament at all, Jesus had 12 disciples, but he had an inner circle named Peter, James, and John. But I would be strong enough to say to you biblically, John was actually the closest to Jesus. He was the closest to Jesus. He was the only one who arrived at the cross. He's the only one who made it to the cross. All the other 11 forsook Jesus. In fact, John knows that he's Jesus' favorite so confidently that he refers to himself in the gospel of John as the one whom Jesus loved, which I always thought was Took a lot of nerve to put in print, okay, to put in the inspired text of Scripture. Imagine using that as your email signature, the one that Jesus loves, right? Like John was like, hey, you know, Jesus likes you too, but I'm his favorite, you know? Hey, can I say with all seriousness here, John felt pretty confident about it. And actually, when he says the one that Jesus loves, you know what he's actually saying? 
He's actually saying in John 13, when Jesus, the Bible says, he ungirded himself and took up a towel and washed their feet. The Bible says in John 13 that Jesus loved them until the end. And the reason John years later writes as the one that Jesus is loved is because he has personal amazement that Jesus kept loving him no matter how many times he failed him. He failed him, 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 he failed him. So the one that Jesus is loved is not a statement that I'm his favorite. It's a statement that I'm personally amazed that Jesus keeps loving even when I keep failing. He's the one that Jesus loves. Jesus loved them till the end, the Bible says. Until the end. At the Last Supper, John, we get a couple of reasons why we know he's the one that Jesus loves. Because in John chapter 13, verse 23, at the Last Supper, John says that he reclined his head and leaned it back on Jesus' chest. Now listen, I got some guy friends that are pretty close to me. But none of my guy friends feel close enough that they would lean back their head on my chest during dinner. Okay, If I got a guy friend that puts his head on my chest during dinner, he has fundamentally redefined that relationship. Okay, that's a Jonathan and Saul bro love. That's a deep bro love, okay? But I do have one young man who if he put his head on my chest during dinner, it would be totally right. His name is Jonathan Knox Mosgrove. And John says, I'm like a son to this heavenly father. Oh, he loves me like a father. It's okay for me to put my head on his chest. It's perfectly normal to place my head on the chest of Jesus. Suffice it to say, Jesus and John were very close. And at this time, they're seeing each other for the first time in almost 60 years. So let me ask you a question. What kind of reunion does that entail? What kind of reunion does it entail for 60 years? Oh, here it is. He falls at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. Church, that is not intended to be a figure of speech. He literally thought he was going to die. He thought he was dead. He thought he was perishing. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a, a picture of, uh, in a season, a, a picture of Jesus in one of my Christian school kind of classrooms. You might have seen the same one. I don't know. They have a lot of different Jesuses now, urban Jesuses, you know, deer hunting Jesuses. Back in my day, they had like two or three pictures, right? That's all you had. You know what I'm talking about? Like two or three pictures of Jesus. That's all you had. And it seemed to be the most popular one back in the day, Josh, that I began to see. It looked like an Olin Mills portrait. You remember this? You could only go to Olin Mills, by the way, when I was a kid. And, and he had perfect skin. You know what I'm talking about? Perfect complexion, full lips. Jesus looked like he got injections, you know. Looked really good, Botox. He's got this beautiful braided Brooke Shields hair. You know, the Brooke Shields hair. It looks amazing. He had this expression, you know, like this. <laughs> Just like he had seen a bird fly by, you know. I mean, th- that's the picture I grew up of Jesus. He had that expression. You know the one I'm talking about? Kind of like this. You know this one? Looks just like this, you know. <laughs> I don't know about you, but, but that's, the, that's the Jesus expression that I, I grew up with, right? That's the one that, that I had seen all throughout my life. But my, my image of Jesus was this sad, jobless guy with tears in his eyes who walked around in flip-flops and talked a lot about his feelings, shared about his emotions. That's the Jesus I had, which first, I want to just say at face value, I'm not sure where we get that image anyways, because Jesus was a carpenter. He was a table maker. You know what that means? He was rugged and buff. Yeah, historians say he was 5'8", 150 pounds, but I guarantee he was cut. He was cut. Those, those pecs look like planters outside of windows. Okay, Jesus was he, was, he was a carpenter. He was a man's man. 
But that's definitely, just at face value, please, I'm not being disrespectful. Listen, at face value, at face value, that's not what we see here in Revelation. He's got wild hair, y'all. He's got this crazy look in his eye. Even if you take it at face value, he's the kind of guy you would never want to run into on a back alley. Not the Revelation 1 picture. And when you understand all the symbolism, you realize it's pointing to someone so powerful that John feels like he's gonna die. He feels like he's gonna perish. Now, this is a different Jesus than the one John had known? No. Is this a different Jesus than the one he had been with? No, it's just that he was, when he was here, and listen, church, when he, even now in our day, that part of him is veiled and it's invisible to the naked eye. That part of Jesus, when he was on the earth in his first advent, was veiled from the disciples. And even now in our day, that part is veiled from our eyes. Truth be told, can I tell you, church, Jesus has always had this kind of power. But throughout his ministry on earth, it had been veiled. Hey, I read an article from a scientist this week. Can I share it with you? It flabbergasted me. Every once in a while in Jesus' life, the power that we see in Revelation 1 would break out in his earthly ministry. But it was just every once in a while. You remember like that quaint little miracle called the feeding of the 5,000? You remember that quaint little miracle? We call it cute. We put it on flannel graph boards. We call it a little cute, quaint miracle. Oh, Jesus, great, man. Lots of people, 5,000 men, women and children, 10,000, five loaves, two bread. Two fish, right? Ninja Turtle lunchbox, eight-year-old comes forward, hands him five loaves, two fish. He's got sardines and bread. And Jesus multiplies it, feeds 5,000, got 12 basketfuls left over. And we think, oh, that's a great little miracle. Quaint miracle. I read of a scientist this week. You guys know I'm a wannabe scientist. I read of a scientist this week who considered the question of how much power would it take to generate the matter to create the food necessary to feed 5,000 people. Now, remember, Jesus created food out of thin air standing on a hillside. You all know the principle of matter. Matter cannot be created. Matter cannot be destroyed. That's why it must take energy then to therefore convert the matter. So catch this. Here's what's so amazing about it. When Jesus created this food out of thin air standing on a hillside, the scientists assumed that I read that each person on the hillside ate eight ounces of bread, which is reasonable, eight ounces of food. If you use Einstein's famous matter, matter to energy formula, E equals MC squared, he concluded that the amount of energy necessary to create that much matter out of thin air would be equivalent to all of the electrical power available on earth working at 100% output 100% of the time 24-7 for four years straight just to create the energy to create the matter for that meal. And if you go back and read John 6, Jesus did it without breaking a sweat. That's how much power our Savior has. He didn't break a sweat. That's the power that John sees on the island of Patmos. See, that power was always there. You just couldn't see it when Jesus was in his first advent. It was veiled, and here it is now in John, Revelation 1, now unveiled with all its strength. So why is Jesus appearing this way now to John? Why not appear to John the way he knew him on earth? Why not appear to him as the one to give him a tender hug? Sarah, why not appear to John and walk up to him and let him put his head on his chest? Why not appear to him on the island of Patmos and come and sit down with him and take communion? Why not 
Why not do what he did the first time? Let me tell you why, church. Because Jesus' plan right now is not to deliver his church from the persecution and the pain. He's not showing up with the news, hey, don't worry, it gets better. Hey, don't worry, it's going to get better. It's not going to get better, at least for the time being. It's not going to get better at all for the church in the early century. So instead, what he does is he shows John his power, his majesty, and his love so that John can hope in the midst of these things. John can have strength in the midst of his trials. You see, you got to understand, church, in the time of intense persecution, you don't need a sentimental Jesus who simply makes you feel warm at night. You don't need a Jesus who is one part genie, one part therapist, and one point life coach, and the rest warm blanket. No, you need to see a Jesus who is sovereign over every power that's at work in the world. You need to see a Jesus who is powerful than any tribulation you face. You need to see a Jesus who is high and lifted up and sovereign over every tribulation that you would face. That's what you need in the midst of tribulation. And look what happens in verse 17. Look what happens next. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. You know what first and the last means? If you study the book of Colossians, it means that Jesus is God. He is at the beginning and he's at the end. And because Jesus is God at the beginning, he's going to be God at the end. And it means he's going to be God at the beginning and God at the end, which means if he was God at the beginning and he's going to be there at the end, we can be sure that he's also God in the middle. That he's God and he's sovereign in the midst of whatever it is we face. He is God in the middle. He is God at the beginning and he's God at the end. He is your Alpha and Omega. He knows your beginning from your end. He continues, verse 18. Jesus continues. He said, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Hey, the guy who has the keys has the power, right? Yeah. The guy who has the keys has the power. A couple years ago, we were at uh, something called the General Assembly in, in Orlando. Or denomination that I was a part of, and there we were at the General Assembly. And how many of you know when you go, you know, fly to Orlando, you go to the convention center, um, they always park the real expensive cars up front in valet, and then they park the cars that I rent all the way in the back of the parking lot. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? And I, I got there in Orlando, you know what I'm talking about? And so I got there in Orlando, and I walked up, and come on, guys, you know what I'm saying. It's not mine, but I got to look. I look, and right there at the front is a Lamborghini, right? You know, a Lamborghini. And, and you're a guy, so I know it's not mine, but I walk over there. You can't not look in the window. So I walk over there, and I'm looking in the window of this, and there's a couple of pastors beside me, and all of a sudden, I'm standing there looking in the window, trying to get a peep of everything, and, and all of a sudden, and I'm like, oh, dear Jesus, what happened? You know, and I look back, and there's a guy standing against the wall, and he's got his arms crossed. He's got that little electrical starter. And you know what he was saying when he did that? When he started that up, he was saying, hey, look, you can look all you want, but you ain't getting the keys, and you ain't going to take this thing anywhere. Okay, you can understand, you can admire, you can look at a distance, but this ain't yours. I got the keys to this thing. I got the keys to what it is that you are looking at. Let me tell you what Jesus is doing in Revelation chapter one. He's saying, John, it looks like Nero's in control. It looks like Domitian's in control, but I got the powers of this world, even death and hell. They look powerful, but I got the keys. They don't go anywhere without me. And you listen to me, John, you listen to me. All of these kings now, they're just my servants now because I'm king of the universe. They're serving my purposes now. Don't you think that they're gonna do something that I want? allow because I'm sovereign. I'm in control. And you know what? I will allow all things to align for my purpose and my circumstances and my desire in your life and in my church. That's what he's doing. Jesus is standing back with the 
Lamborghini electric starter. And he's saying, you know what? I am sovereign. I am sovereign. And listen, listen, John, you're looking at the power of the empire right now. You're looking at the power of Nero and Domitian. It's just an illusion. I know they look like they're in power and you may be feel overwhelmed, John, right now, but I want to tell you, I am sovereign. I am indeed sovereign. I'm more sovereign than the power of your boss. It may seem right now in this first Advent season, because we don't have the second Advent season. That's why I'm preaching on it today to get us to look forward to it. It might be right now in your first Advent season. It might be that the power of your boss, it looks like it has sovereign control. Maybe the power of your cancer looks like it has sovereign control. Maybe it looks like the powers in our world, they look like they have sovereign control, but I'm going to tell you, it is an illusion. And there is one who holds the keys. His name is Jesus. Psalm 76 says that God even makes the wrath of sinful men to praise him. He makes the wrath and anger of sinful men to praise him. Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The heart of the king is like a river in the hand of the Lord. God can turn the most powerful king's hearts in any direction he wants to turn them. He can turn them in whatever way he chooses. Listen to me. If God of the universe, Jesus Christ, controls even the anger of sinful men and their hearts, and he controls the hearts of pagan kings, he surely got everything in your life under control as well. He surely got it under control in his sovereign care. One of the passages I learned in my pastorship years ago when I was doing scripture memorization in Ephesians 1, and it's amazing how when you grow older, you start forgetting things. And I was just trying to see how much I could re- recall of it. But this is one part that I always recall when I'm personally just quoting scripture in my mind. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. And the Bible says, Paul says, we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have been predestined. Now listen, I have my questions about predestination too. I have my questions too. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. But let me tell you something I don't have a question about is there's two words in that sentence and that's purpose in all things. You know what he says? There is purpose in everything I face. There is purpose in everything you face. You know what that means? There's not one stray molecule. There's not one stray cancer cell. There's not one stray spouse. There's not one stray child that God cannot use for his own purpose, that God cannot orchestrate for his own purpose. Or here's another one. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, sold for a sin, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your heavenly Father? The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Some of you men in here, God has a much easier time with that than he used to. He has to count a whole lot less. He can count on two hands the amount of hairs you got on your head. But nonetheless... He says, not one single hair falls off without me knowing. Listen to me. It's harder to get any more micro than that. You want to talk about a micromanager? Jesus. It's harder to get more micro than knowing sparrows and hairs on your head. Birds in the sky, hairs on your head. A.K.A. nothing happens in your life apart from the will of the Father. Apart from him allowing it to happen, oh, Craig, Craig, you have jumped off the theological deep end. You listen to me. I want to be very careful here. I'm not saying that God is the one making all of these things happen to you. We live in a fallen world where we have the curse of sin and people have free choices. And the result is a lot of people do a hard things that hurt you and that harm you and terrible things to each other. What I'm saying is that Jesus promises that none of those things are outside of his sovereign control. And he promises to use every single one of his purposes and for his perfect purpose in your life. That's Jesus' promise. Like John, we may feel like we're on the precipice of tribulation and the purpose of 
God and the purposes of God is pursuing and the purposes God is pursuing even in my life right now, they may remain a mystery to me and they might remain a mystery to me until eternity. I may not have any idea of why I'm facing what I'm facing or you face what you face. It may be a mystery until eternity. But let me tell you something. The resurrection of Jesus and the vision of Jesus, they assure us there on the island of Patmos that Jesus is pursuing a purpose and he will not fail to fulfill it. He will not fail to fulfill it. He is faithful to fulfill it. I've heard it described like a, like a tapestry. I don't know if you've ever seen a tapestry before. There's order on one side. The order on one side looks like craziness on the other side if you've seen a tapestry like this. I've heard it said, and if you ever go to Germany or England, you see in Germany or England there's these huge, ginormous tapestries, right? And they're beautiful. They can be up in cathedrals and and nothing's out of place. You look at one side of the tapestry and things are beautiful, right? I mean, it's amazing. And you flip it over to the other side and all of a sudden you look at the back side of it and it is a chaos. It is a mess. If you've ever seen one of these beautiful tapestries, there are strings going everywhere. There are things that look so out of place. There are places where the great artist had messed up and patched some work on the back side of this. So there's order on one side looks like chaos on the other side. Let me tell you something right now in Revelation 1. John's life looks like chaos. John's life looks like cloths that are out of place. Listen to me. Jesus is saying to John, there's not one single strand out of place. And one day I'm going to flip the whole history of the tapestry and you're going to see that all along I have been weaving into your life the beauty of my own son, Jesus Christ. And I've been weaving into your life the destiny of who God wants you to be in this earth and the beautiful image of myself in your life. And so though even right now it looks like chaos in your life, there is coming a point when God will flip the tapestry and it will be so beautiful it will put jaws on the ground. This is the tapestry that God creates in you and I, that God weaves Jesus and his blessed image in and through our lives. Listen to me, that's the vision that God gives John in the midst of tribulation. You see, we live in a world right now that is characterized by Jesus' first coming. Everybody say first coming. That's Christmas, y'all. That's Christmas. Jesus was born meek. He was born poor. He was born mild. He was born in a manger. He lived every one of his days under the subjugation. Every day he lived, he lived under Roman control. He did. He lived under Roman subjugation. Every single day of his life, he was born into a system of severe oppression. His family had to flee from their home as refugees. I mean, he literally was meek and mild. And that, by the way, church, is still the epic of history today. Which means that we, like Jesus, will find ourselves sometimes in hardship, won't we, church? We're going to find ourselves sometimes like Jesus as victims of injustice. Have you ever been a victim of injustice? We're going to find ourselves sometimes suffering unnecessarily. We're going to find ourselves and wonder why we are facing what we're facing. There's going to be days where we're going to be subject to the powers of Rome. And listen to me. People in this earth will try to tell you that being a Christian means that you escape all of that. Let me tell you something. They're not telling you the truth. You're not going to escape all that in the first epic of history. You're not going to face that in the first advent. You're not going to escape it every single time just since Jesus has come to the earth. But let me tell you something. Jesus there on the island of Patmos, he pulls back the veil and he gives us a glimpse of who he is because he died for us and because he overcame death and because he's one standing at the end. He will faithfully have the keys. And I know that in the middle part, he's working out his purposes in my life. Or I could say it this way. Because he's the one standing at the end, 
I can be sure he has a plan in the present. Because he's the one standing at the end, I can be sure he has a plan in the present. Nothing escapes his sight. Nothing. A few years ago, my wife and I, when we were watching Netflix, um, you had to rent the DVDs. Y'all remember this? There wasn't no streaming Netflix. You got the whole boxes, right? And we're late adopters. We didn't watch much TV, but we got the, we got the boxes, the season of 24. Jack Bauer, baby. Kiefer Sutherland, right? We were watching through 24, and I don't know. We spent about four days on our marriage retreat for 10 hours a day watching through all, and I'm just kidding, all the seasons, right? You just want that binge, binge, and binge, and binge. I never forget. I think it was season three. One season, season three, I think, I literally, we're watching it, and Jack Bauer dies. And I paused the TV, and I said, babe, I think Jack Bauer just died. And she's like, I think Jack Bauer just died too. You remember he gets on the ship to China, I think it was. I'm like, he's, he's dead. Like, and, and I'm sitting there, and I've got anxiety about this, right? Like, Jack Bauer's dead. Like, what in the world is going to happen? Like, what is taking place? And as I'm sitting there, I look down. And as I look down at season three, I'm realizing, okay, Jack's face is on the front of this box. And then I look down to my right, and there's season four. And Jack's face is on the front of the box. And I'm like, well, there, look at box five. Jack's face is on the front of season five. And I'm like, okay, look, it looks like all the villains and the bad guys are in control in season three. But listen, the bad guys and the villains didn't write the script. Jack Bauer's hero wrote the script. And I look on the face of the box and Jack Bauer's on season four and his face is on season five and his face is on season six. I guess what I'm here to say to you is it may look like in your life like the bad guys are in charge or it looks like suffering's in charge, but they're not the ones writing the script. And at the end of time, Jesus' face is on the box. At the last chapter, when this whole thing closes down, the one who writes the script is the one who's victorious. The one who writes the script is the one who's overcome death, hell, and the grave and has never faced a battle that has been too difficult for our Savior. That's what I'm here to tell you this morning. And John says, look, look at me. Look at me, Jesus says. Look at me. The powers on the earth, they can do all they want, but they're not the ones writing the script, and they're, they're, they don't have their face on the front of the box. On the final season, my face is on the box. So Jesus says to John, look at me, John. Look at me. I'm more powerful than you could ever imagine. Look at me. Look at me right now. I want you to look at me, John. Look at me. I died for you. In your worst moment, I showed my love for you. Look at me, John. I have the, de- I have the keys to death hell and the grave. Look at me, John, you may not understand why you're suffering or what it means, but you know what it can't mean. It can't mean that I've forgotten you and it can't mean that I've lost control of your situation. I know it seems bleak. I know you can't look to tomorrow, but you need to take that off the table. It can't mean that I'm not with you. It can't mean that I'm not going to be for you. John, look at me. Look at me, John. You've been looking at Domitian too long. Look at me. Keep your eyes on me. I use my greatest power to save you. And now I'm using my greatest power to perfect my purpose in you. You think I'm going to use my greatest power to die for you on the cross and then leave leave you in the midst of your suffering when you can't see left from right? God, he says, look at me, John. Look at me. What are you afraid of, John? You really think Caesar's winning? Come on. You really think Nero's winning? You really think Domitian's winning? The only legacy Nero is going to leave or Caesar's going to leave is, is a cheap pizza place that hubs itself in gas stations. That's all he's going to leave. And Nero, don't be afraid of Nero. One day the name John will be the most used common name in the English language. Language, And people are going to name their dogs Nero. You look at me. You look at me, John. You look at me. I have the keys to death and hell. Look at me. Look at me. He's saying to John. Look at, he's, he's saying to you, look at me. You don't think I can control, can, you think I can't control cancer? 
I got the keys to that. You, you think I, I don't know you need a job? I got the keys to that too. You don't think I know you're worried about your marriage? I got the keys to that too. Look at me, John. Look at my power. Look at my control. Look at my love. Why did you doubt, John? Why did you doubt? Look at me, church. Look at me. Everything that lies outside of my control lives under the control of my Savior. And one of the most painful things in this life is just the complete loss of control. I'm learning in my life, I'm 33, but the loss of control in life is the most painful lesson. I'm talking about even the normal control over what I call the normal decorums of life, like the embarrassment of your body. You go into a hospital, the touching and the poking and the prodding and the being naked in front of people standing around your bed and, 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 and just the normal decorums. You can't escape the things that you're in right now. You can't, do, you, can't, you can't have enough willpower. Whatever challenges you face, you get stuff put in your body. Just, just the normal decorums of life. And then on top of that, as humans, all the questions of control, like the questions about your finances, the questions about the possibilities and capabilities, your future capabilities, what is life gonna look like? And to know that not one of those things is outside the control of the one who gave his life for me is wow. Wow. That brings me hope. There's a second thing that brings me hope. The other one is the reality of God's presence. One of the most precious passages that are enormously encouraging to someone suffering is Acts 17. You remember what Paul says in Acts 17? The way Paul talks about the sovereignty of God. Do you remember what he says there on Mars Hill? He talks about the sovereignty of God as that God determines your exact place of your dwelling and that God determines the length of your life. And the reason he does this is because he is near, and catch this, because he is near, the scripture says, and any moment we can reach out and touch him. So look what the Apostle Paul does. He talks about the sovereignty of God has determined the days of your life. The sovereignty of God has determined the nation you live in because he is near and you can reach out to him at any moment. You know what that means? Often when we think of God's sovereignty, we think of it as his transcendent capabilities. We think of sovereignty as his transcendent quality. Actually, what he's talking about is the imminent sovereignty of God. He is sovereignly near. And listen, in Acts 17, unlike any other text in the Bible, does something that's so miraculous. So remarkable. What he does in Acts 17 is that teaching puts together the presence of God with the sovereignty of God. We always think of that the sovereignty of God is being removed from us. But in Acts 17, he puts the sovereignty of God and the presence of God together so that the one who is near is the same one who is in control of all things that I can't control. So that the one who is close to me is in control of everything that I can't control in my life. That is a beautiful bringing together of the two. The two truths that every sufferer on planet earth needs to know. And that is that God is near sovereignty and yet he is in control of everything I can't control, which means number one, I'm not alone. And number two, my life is under careful control because there's gonna be moments in your life you're gonna need to know those two truths. You're gonna need to know the imminent sovereignty of God, the imminent sovereignty. Let me tell you what I love most about John. John is the apostle who talked most about the love of God. Yeah, Paul may have been the church's greatest theologian. I give it to you. Paul was the greatest theologian, but no Bible writer, and I would argue this, comes close to John in their description of the beauty of the love of God. 
John, what, what does Paul talk about? He talks about restoration. He talks about salvation. He talks about it in terms of regeneration and propitiation and predestination and justification. But how does John talk about salvation? For God so loved the world. Do away with the propitiation. God couldn't handle himself. He couldn't, he couldn't help himself. He loved you so much. He loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. What does he say in 1 John 3, 1? Behold, beloved God. What does he say? 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. What does he say in 1 John 4, 8? The same John who writes on the island of Patmos. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now the question is this, church. How could he say that? How could he say that? Patmos certainly didn't feel like love. Patmos didn't look like love. Rome didn't feel like love. Nero didn't look like love. Domitian didn't look like love. Boiled in oil did not look like love. Boiled in oil didn't feel like love. Yesterday didn't feel like love. Today didn't feel like love. Tomorrow doesn't look like love. Why in the world can you say God's love when it don't look like God is loving? Why can you say God is love when it doesn't look like your circumstances match up with the reality that he is love? Let me tell you why. It's because he had seen Jesus. First John tells us, I've seen him. I touched him. I felt his embrace. I looked in his eyes. He smiled at me. I put my head on his chest. I have touched him. I felt the tenderness in his friendship. I felt the love in his eyes. I have seen him in his cross. I have now seen him in his power in Revelation 1. He has eyes that are like flaming fire. He has words that come like a sword. He's got hair that looks like wool. He's got feet that are burnished bronze. I know it doesn't feel like it right now, but trust me, he is love. And this is love. This is love. This is love. It doesn't feel like love, but it's love playing keys would you come I have this sense this morning I have this sense and I mean this with all my heart I have this sense this morning that some of you need to see Jesus this way this Christmas and not as a babe in a manger I have this deep sense rooted sense in my spirit this morning that you need to see Jesus in Revelation 1 not Luke 2 You need to see the sovereign Lord who is unveiled in all his glory, majesty, and power. And some of you, I know what you want me to say this morning because I want to say it to myself. What you want me to say this morning is God is going to end all your problems. God's going to end it. Tomorrow's a new day. It's all uphill from here or all downhill from here. It's all hunky-dory from here. It's all smooth from here. God will end this. God will be done with it. God's going to end it. Well, I've been in what I'm currently facing since September 27th. I'm moving on almost three months. It's going to be ended. It's done. It's finished. It is only a season. It's over. But that's not necessarily true. It's not necessarily true. At least in the short run. The time of tribulation may last a little while longer. The time of persecution may last a little. It won't be forever. But it may be for a little while longer because we're still in the first advent of Christmas. And we're still in the first advent of Christ. You know what that means? That means you need a theology that accounts for that. You need a theology. You may think you want a theology that promises that if you're a good person, then God will remove all the problems of your life. But here's the thing. You listen to this preacher. You'll never actually come to know Jesus that way. The only way you'll come to know Jesus is sometimes going through the problems. 
That's the only way you're really going to know him. That's the only way you're going to have intimate fellowship with him. It's to go through the troubles. And I know some of you don't want to hear that right now. You're already saying to me, I'm sitting there. I don't receive that. I stand against that in Jesus' name. I rebuke that preacher in Jesus' name. Well, I know I could grow a bigger church if I would promise you they'd all go away, but that's not what I promise you. What I promise you is that Jesus is faithful. And Jesus is the one who holds all power. And Jesus is sovereign and has eyes that are like fire. And Jesus is the one who's got feet like burnished bronze. And if you see it, and you see it's through these problems that God makes you stronger. It's through these problems. James chapter 1 says it is the tribulation of your faith that produces patience in you. It's in your tribulation you learn how dependable he really is. It's in your tribulation you learn how strong of a shoulder he is to lean on. It's in your tribulation you learn that he will never leave you nor forsake you. It's in your tribulation you realize the righteous will never be forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. You realize it's in your tribulation that God wants to turn you, Isaiah said, into an oak of righteousness. How many of you want to be an oak of righteousness? How many of you want an oak of righteousness? You know what an oak of righteousness is? Oak that are in, oaks that are in storm-rich areas, they don't fall down in the hurricanes. Have you noticed this? Oaks don't fall down in the tornadoes. You know why? Because the winds force make the, the roots go deeper. Every storm that hits an oak, the roots go deeper. Every storm that hits an oak, the roots go deeper. The oaks don't fall in storms. The storms make the roots go deeper. And when they walk in tribulation, and you walk in difficulty, what happens is that the storms make your roots go deeper. And some of you got ministry in your future that you cannot perceive rightly in this season. And what God is trying to say to you is, I can't have you be blown over by the winds of tribulation in the future. And I can't have you be blown over by the winds of difficulty in a nation that is forever moving further away from Christ. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send you across the sea. I'm going to send you right in the middle of the storm. But don't you worry because I've already promised you'll get to the other side and with every step, your roots are going to go deeper. Your roots are going to go deeper. You don't get stronger in Jesus by sitting on a beach. You get stronger in Jesus by going through a storm. And you go through a storm realizing God will not forsake you and God will not leave you. And and, and, and God doesn't want you blown apart. God won't allow you to be blown apart. You, You hear me? I acknowledge some of the problems that some of you are facing in here. I acknowledge. I acknowledge, Lord, before these precious people, these are real problems. I'm not making light of them. I'm not making light of them whatsoever. I realize that cancer is real and it can take you out. I'm here to say cancer is real. Cancer take you out. Divorce, it's real and it can take you out. A spouse abandoning you is real and it can take you out. Addiction is real, it can take you out. Abuse is real and it can take you out. Losing a child is real and it can take you out. I'm just here to tell you also that Jesus is also real and he's bigger than that problem and he's bigger than that insurmountable obstacle and his power is above it all. Jesus will give you a glimpse. He'll give you a glimpse. He'll give you a glimpse. The Christian counselor I love, Larry Crabb, he said Revelation 1 is his favorite pastoral counseling verse. Because this is why. He says in Revelation chapter 1, this is what Larry Crabb says, on the island of Patmos, Jesus did not give John relief from dire circumstances. Instead, he gave him an unforgettable vision of the Son of God. He gave him an unforgettable vision. I'm not trying to put a little one-size-fits-all band-aid on your problem. I realize that some of the problems you're facing are complex and they require professional help. Can we help you? We're here to help you. Your problem needs professional help. We're here to help you. We're here to point you in the right direction. But I want to tell you, it's time for some of you to stop shouting at your tribulation and start gazing at your Savior. It's time for you in this Christmas season to stop looking at the obstacle and start gazing at Jesus.
Start gazing at your Savior and keep your eyes locked upon Jesus. It's time and see that there is no power on earth, not even the power in your present problems that compares to the power of the Revelation 1 Jesus. Listen, the key to overcoming tribulation, the key to overcoming the victory in tribulation is worship. It's worship. The key to victory in tribulation is worship. And I know everything within you doesn't want to worship in tribulation. But worship isn't a cliche. You hear me? Worship is not a cliche. It's not for songs. Worship's not songs at all. Worship is not songs before a message. Are you kidding me? Worship is not a microphone and some speakers and lyrics on a screen. Worship is a weapon you carry with you at all times that literally pierces through the clouds of darkness and despair and draws you into the light. It pierces whatever situation you find and draws you into the light of our Jesus. Reading books and listening podcasts don't make you stronger in Jesus. It's walking through trials and worshiping that makes you strong in Jesus. It's not amassing some information or knowledge of God's word that makes you stronger. It's walking through the valley of the shadow of death and having God comfort you. And worship in the midst of it that makes you stronger. That's what Revelation 1, it's a, it's a division designed to move John to worship. That's all Jesus wants him to do is to get his eyes off of Patmos and to get his eyes on Jesus. Worship says, I feel like this but you have revealed yourself as this. Worship says, I feel like that, but you have revealed yourself as this person. Worship says, I looks like this in my family, but this is who you have revealed yourself to be. Oh yeah, the problems are big, but you are bigger. Oh yeah, the problems hurt you, but you are better. That's what worship is. That's what worship is. And that's what many of you need today. Many of you need that Jesus. Can I just talk about my Savior this morning as I close? Can I talk about my Savior? He was born contrary to the laws of birth, and he died triumphant over the laws of death. Jesus is an amazing Savior. He was born in poverty, yet the wise men brought him their riches and laid the riches at his feet. He was cradled. Think about this in another person's crib. He sailed on another person's boat. He rode on another person's animal. He ate in another person's upper room. He was laid in another person's tomb, yet to him belongs the unsearchable riches of glory. The earth is his and the fullness thereof, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You you, you listen to me about Jesus. He never wrote but one time, and he wrote in disappearing sand in the temple, but yet all of the libraries in the world can't contain the books that are written about him. We know of one time where he sang a hymn that was in the upper room the night he was betrayed, but yet the most creative geniuses of melody have brought their purest gifts and laid them reverently at the feet of our Savior. You got to think about Jesus. As a baby, he frightened King Herod. As a child, he perplexed the elders and the teachers of the law. As a man, he made the sea be still. And if you're in a sea, in a boisterous sea right now, you hear this preacher, boisterous waves lie down upon the bosom of Jesus' gentle command. He just says, peace be still, and they're still. Sin could not resist him. Satan could not seduce him. Sinners could not withstand him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. I'm talking about Jesus, my Savior this morning. I'm talking about the one who is sovereign and has all control and all power. He is a friend in loneliness. He is strength in weakness. He is health in sickness. He is the wholeness when we are wounded. 
He is the widow's pension. He is the orphan's adoption. He is the exile's calls to citizenship. And he is the one who is coming back, the Bible says, with 10,000 saints to execute judgment and his righteousness. I want you just to say Jesus with me. Come on, just say Jesus. Look, Listen, just say it again, Jesus. Look, that's a whole anthem in one word. Just say it again, Jesus. Look, that's two syllables that contains the whole power of the universe. Come on, just say it with me. Jesus, Jesus. Come on, just say Jesus. He's great. Come on, say Jesus. His name is Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. You might want to stand up on your feet right now and just begin to worship him. Just begin to worship our Jesus. He's wonderful. He's amazing. He's marvelous and magnificent. Can you lift your hands across this room? Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.